You are listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today Tom is joined by Fred Dust, author of the new book, Making Conversations, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication. Fred is a former senior partner and global managing director at the legendary design firm IDEO, and in his new book, he shows how to design conversations in meetings that are creative and impactful. Let's listen in as he talks to Tom about the four pillars of conversation, where conversation interconnects with design, and how we can do a better job of giving these skills to young people. Fred Dust, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Tom, thanks for having me. It's really great to have you. Congratulations on Making Conversation, your terrific new book. Thank you, and congratulations on not calling me Fred Durst, which is what mostly people do. <laughs> Fred, um, you, you've been in the creative space a long time and have been an advocate for design and design thinking. Um, I think it's more important than ever. What, what about you? I think, I think generally speaking, creativity and embracing the notion that we're all makers is, is, is kind of fundamental. And, and it's, it's really at the, at the core of the work that I'm doing right now is thinking about, as you know, making every hard conversation kind of really kind of thinking about how you make that happen. Think about it as a creative act. And so, yeah, I think it's probably the most important thing we should be doing right now. I guess what um, one thing that strikes me about the crazy year that we have experienced globally is uh, now it's very clear that we're in this VUCA world, this world full of novelty and complexity, and that what young people can expect is the unexpected. Um, and it, uh, I, I so appreciate um, you and other uh, early leaders in design and design thinking for uh, giving us a, a structured problem-solving approach on how to have, to have a, a set of tools when we walk into the into the unknown. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, one of the things I've always really cared about is not just that we have it, but that, that we, that, that, that toolkit is, is equally distributed. So, you know, when I was in New York, I used to have my, my, my people would, I would, I'd, I'd train them by having them go teach classes at the Harlem school zone. Um, uh, because it's like, I wanted, I wanted people who wouldn't get exposed to this to learn because it's a really, it's, it, I Tom, I'll tell you one of, one of the things I don't love is the word resilience. Like I, I'm not interested in raising resilient children. I'm really, I'm really interested in raising courageous and creative children, children who feel like they can actually kind of really aspire to do things. And I think creativity and learning to make and keeping that in your soul helps you do that. So it's, it's a big piece of, of, the, of my thinking and, and the work I do. Fred, until I read your book, I had never really, um, I never really, it's ironic, but I never really connected conversation and design thinking. Um, but almost every step of design thinking um, involves a conversation or a set of conversations. Is that fair? Yeah. And it's really, you know, it's really interesting. And one of the things that I, that I sort of, I talk about Tom in the book is like, so the book, as you know, has seven C's, which are really basically kind of like um, the components of, of how to make a great conversation. It ends with creation, right? Which is, I think the thing that kind of focuses the most on, on kind of the way you think about design, but, but every step of the way it's, you have to have a conversation that's kind of advancing your thinking so you can actually get something into the world in a really significant way. And, and, and just for those of you who may not know or understand design thinking or design, or it's like one of the things I often say about design at its, at its simplest level, design is just thinking very carefully about the things you put into the world, which we all need to be doing like every day, right, Tom? I mean, it's like very like 
what needs to happen? What needs to be put there? And, and, and is it going to help us? And is it going to help the world? Yeah. And, and to think with empathy about uh, the, the people that might encounter it, right? And, and in what way um, it can be a gift to them. Right. Yeah. No, it's really funny. I mean, so weirdly, you're going to find this weird, um, but it's like a, and, and there was a, an ex-democratic presidential candidate who once fought me on this. But I, I often use the word love um, because because I actually think if you get to love, then you actually will get to empathy. But if you start with empathy, you might get to understanding. If you get to understanding, then you might start you might get to dis, you know disagreement. So so by going high, we, we, we try to aim for the empathy, which I think is the right thing to do. Uh, really quickly, Tom, one of the things that was really interesting for me and my when I was working over at IDEO is that I had I experienced one one team specifically that was working with a really remarkable client and a really great client as a hospitality client. And I could tell that the team didn't really like the consumer didn't like the people who were staying at this hotel because they were asking like questions and judging like in, in kind of a bad way. Like they would, they would be like, don't you think the lights in here are too bright? And they're like, no, I can finally see my work. And, I'd, and they'd be like, no, you're wrong. And I'd be, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so I had to, actually had to stop that team halfway through and be like, do what you need to do to learn how to fall in love with these guests. And then we'll come, we'll restart the work at that point. So anyway, little, little work story that I love that. It reminds me of my friend Larry Rosenstock. Um, my friend Caleb Rashad went to went to work for Larry at High Tech High, and Larry said his simple advice. He said, "Spend a few days uh, falling in love with people here." Right. What a what a gift, right? So, well, that that sounds like a very smart set of advice. I, I, I think that's right. Like it's like it's, it's the best we can do. Uh, Fred, congrats on this great book. It's called Making uh, Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication. I think this is the only book that I've ever read on the subject. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I, this, is, this could be a personal problem that I haven't read very broadly, um, but, but it's, it's interesting. I, I guess I, and I'm not, I don't recall the origin story of what prompted a book on the subject of conversation specifically well there's a couple of things so um you know let's I, we're gonna we'll, we'll skip ahead to the end of my career at IDEO which was um I had spent about eight years working on a, on a practice called systems at scale and um, within that was our design for education platform so Sandy Spiker who is the CEO of IDEO now which is awesome um uh, we're, we're, she's we're, a total rock star she's, a, she's an amazing yes. rock star I, I adore Sandy and um, but um, so Sandy worked for me or with me. I mean, I, like, she was, she was, we were all part of the same practice. I, I was the, the one who founded it. But um, Sandy, the person who ran our nonprofit, Jocelyn, we founded that out of our nonprofit, um, idea.org out of our nonprofit, out of, out of that, that group. And then most of my work was with philanthropic media and government. So I worked a lot with the Obama administration, worked with Elizabeth Warren, things like that. Um, and my last real client, was the then Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who is now our Surgeon General again. In fact, he'll be interviewing me next week on South by Southwest. Um, so um, at South by Southwest, but, but he um, he was about to issue a, a crisis of, of a crisis, an epidemic of isolation and loneliness in America. And mm -hmm. what I was doing with him was really working to design the gatherings, the town halls that would both be able to kind of get that information out into the world, learn things but also be cathartic and bring communities together in a really powerful way. And so I would say about the last year of that administration, I was mostly thinking about tools for having constructive and positive dialogue. So I, things that were replaced debate that I stole from 
combinations of drama and kindergarten schools um, and like creative tensions, which is literally you, you do it in kindergartners are really good at it. Um, and um, hunch hour, a whole bunch of different methodologies that we built that were all, my premise being that dialogue was going to be fundamental to the kind of curing of the world or the curing of, of America that time. And so really quickly, um, it turns out I wrote the proposal for my book the same time Vivek wrote his proposal. Our book sold at the same time to the same publisher. His, his came out on the health side, mine came out in the, in the business and to-do side or how-to how to side. And, um, and I paused my book because I was like, I could see a pandemic coming in December and I was like, let's wait for a year. So, so my, my book is a year later than his, but it, I sort of feel like it's kind of call and response in a lot of ways, but we, we would be, you know, really quickly Todd is just so funny but it's like but it's like we'd be on calls and he'd be like I can't believe I'm writing about isolation it's the most isolating I've ever been I've ever been and I'm like I'm writing about conversation and it's the most conversational I've ever been in my entire life so it's like it's kind of different experience. well it is it's funny when you write a book you never know like where it's gonna land in the world and in terms of the sweep of history I wrote a book called The Power of Place with a couple colleagues and it came out the day the WHO declared a global pandemic and the book was the book was on community as classroom. And suddenly, you know, little did we know that suddenly learning was in the was was in the uh, was in a community that suddenly schools were closed worldwide. And uh, we hadn't quite written it for that, but it had some relevance. So, yeah, it does. I mean, it's funny when I when I I had I had to write a chapter in March um, about how to have the hardest conversations during a pandemic. And I was like, oh, I think context doesn't really matter anymore. And I was like, oh no, context really matters. Even yeah. It's like really fascinating. So, yeah. Uh, no, I, I totally appreciate that. I want to come back to that because um, the book starts with commitment. This to me struck me as the least intuitive of, uh, of the seven C's. Why does a good conversation uh, or, or clear communication, why does it start with commitment? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story about that one. So I, originally the book was called Conversational Palette. Actually, the, originally the book was called Design and Dialogue. And like my publisher was like, you can't say the word design and you can't say the word dialogue. So it's why it's called <laughs> Conversation. But, uh, um, and uh, I was giving a lecture on what, what I called then the six C's, the Conversational Palette. And I had six C's and I had, I had all of them, but I didn't have one. And so at the end of my lecture, somebody raised their hand and they're like, what happens if somebody just hates me right off the bat and doesn't want to talk to me? And I was like, oh, right, that can happen. And so I basically was like, I, I pulled this out of my like back pocket. I was like, I was like, well, what you do is you just commit to the person, commit to the conversation first and hold your values a little more lightly. Um, and then you'll gradually make your way through the conversation that you need to have. <laughs> so after that, I suddenly had my first chapter, which was commitment. And, um, and it's something that really is surprisingly powerful. You know, the, the notion that we're like, we're, you know, like we are, we're on this call right now. We're, we're committed to each other for at least this, you know, hour. And like, and, and that's it. That's, that, that's where our heads are. That's where we're connected. And, and that means we'll have the conversation we need to be having. So the, the second chapter is on clarity. That, that one strikes me as, um, as pretty intuitive, um, but not for everybody. And not, not I, I guess, um, the chapter was a great reminder to be a little metacognitive about what you're communicating, how you're communicating it, to whom you're communicating. Yeah. Is that fair? 
Yeah, it is. And it's, I think it really relates to your thing. So it's, it's actually the third chapter, but I, I think we should be jumping around. I think it's, it's, it's like, cool. but, but what it is, is this is actually, this chapter, this is, this is funny. You know, everyone wants C's, you know, that's what my, my publisher wanted. <laughs> this chapter was originally called Talk Normal um, because this is actually how, when I would usually lecture, I just be like, talk normal, use every opportunity to talk normal. And I don't know, Tom, if you remember the chapter in the first paragraph, I use the word obfuscates and I'm like, yeah, I probably could have. Yeah, probably could <laughs> But um, ne next edition, we'll, we'll catch it. But it's like, um, my feeling is, um, you'd be surprised all the places where we're not clear on terms. So like, I'm an architect by training. Like, we like expert language. Expert language kind of like often hides the truth. So a really classic example is like, in architecture, we'll say, oh, um, here's an intervention. And what we really mean is like, here's a window or here's a bench or here's something that's kind of changing the space. And I'm like, why don't we just say, here's a window? You know, why don't we just say, here's a bench? And so when I left architecture and went to IDEO, I was like adamant that our designers learned to talk as normal as possible. Like that we didn't use expert design language, that we didn't do it. And I was also adamant that that was the case with healthcare workers and other kind of workers, academicians, you know, really need to think about this in, in, in a, lot of, a lot of ways. And I will tell you one thing that is interesting to call out. So I originally kind of came across this concept construct when I was doing a work in an emergency room and realized that about half of people in the room didn't know what the word triage meant, which meant that they couldn't get access. Um, and so I said to all the healthcare workers, I was like, I was like, you need to talk, talk normal. And what that does and doesn't mean is this, if I'm not an expert in healthcare, then you need to talk normally to me so that I can understand what you're saying. However, you don't want two doctors or two surgeons in, in, in the surgery saying, give me the sharp thing that I can cut someone open with to use whatever. You want them to say scalpel. Like it's like, it's like so, so don't, don't talk normal when you're talking to other experts, that, especially if like lives depend on it. Um, right. But do talk normal when you're talking to people who need to understand. It. I guess so, that's, uh, that's also the link to context, right? The context matters a lot, being super audience aware. That's, that's ex exactly right. And, and so often, and as, as you see in, in, the, in the book and actually in my life, one of the things I talk about is script spotting, how often there are scripts, implicit or explicit in the space or in, in, in a format, in the things that we do. And you have to see them and make sure that you're, those are the scripts you want to be holding your conversation by, or is there some other script? And then how do you undo that if you need to do it? Tom, can I tell you a really little funny story? So Please. I would do a lot of lectures. I still, I mean, I still am doing them, but they're just all online right now. But, um, and they're in these giant auditoriums with like, you know, 500, sometimes 2000 people. And then, um, and I'm on stage, they would give me a podium. Like, it's like I had whatever. And I was like, I just did not like that script. That wasn't a script that I wanted to follow. And so basically I am, um, I would have them remove the podium, put a bench, or like a, a stool, give me a lavalier. About a third of the way through the me being on stage, I would take off my jacket and roll up my sleeves. About another third of the way, I would actually take off my shoes. And then if it was really good, <laughs> I would come down to the audience and do the competition in the audience because I wanted to undo this script that was established by an auditorium. Um, so you, so if you if you get wise and you start to make a plan and kind of kind of think about what what's the plan for your conversation, you can actually spot the scripts and undo the scripts that you don't want to kind of live with. Uh, I want to come at this from a different angle. I, I guess I've had a couple of teammates help me understand the subject of, uh, of code switching. Um, both teammates and a few podcasts over the last two years. Um, what's your take on code switching 
should we be teaching code switching? Is that always a good thing? Oh, that's a, that's a complex one. It's really funny. I'm having this really funny thing because like everyone that I've met in New Orleans right now is black and I'm trying to find somebody to cut my hair and they keep being like, yeah, I don't know anyone who knows how to cut like a white boy's hair. <laughs> so, so don't, don't ask me. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I have to say, like, I actually, I, I don't love the term code switching. And, and here's, here's my perspective is like, I really believe that we should be, we should be speaking from authenticity. Like, I feel like it's really important that you kind of are authentically who you are. Like, I'm a white man. Like, like it's like, I, I paid my way through college and, and undergrad or graduate and undergraduate. But at the same time, like I went to a private school that I really couldn't afford because my father was the headmaster of it. And, um, and so I, I come from privilege. You know, it's like, it's, there's, there's not that much I can do about it. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I, like I find myself as I'm doing lectures, like, people want dating advice. And I'm like, okay, if that's what you want, let's go dating. You know, it's like, and people want advice on race and gender and diversity. And I'm like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do that within reason in, in terms of until I feel like I can't really answer the questions that, that we need to be, we need to be answering. So I don't, I don't love code switching to me sounds a little like play acting. Like you're like, okay, well today I'm going to really play up the gay card. Cause that's what I've got. You know, it's like, and today I'm really going to play up the like, um, I'm old, I'm like 53, you know, card. And so it's like, whatever. But I, I really feel like what, what's really more important is that you you embrace all of the yous that are there and bring them in. Like, I'm gonna tell you one really quick and somewhat, somewhat intimate story. Um, it's the story of how I came out. Um, so I, there's the, how I came out when I was 15 and there's how I actually finally came out, which is that one day I woke up and I was like, I'm gonna pretend I'm a gay man and just walk around all day and have conversations as though as a gay out gay man. And I ended that day and I was like, that was the best day ever. And I was like, mm -hmm. that's it, I'm, I'm coming out. And so um, what I would say is, you know, by living in who I am, I've often been able to kind of get into conversations that I wouldn't get into otherwise. Like my, my conversations with the movement for black lives started with a woman who, who was head of comm saying, I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions. We're really interested in design and design thinking and how it applies to the movement for black lives. But because you're a white man, there's a good likelihood that I don't listen to anything that you say. And I was like, well, that's not okay for me. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, it's like, and I'm like, and she's like, well, you just will never understand the systemic genocide of, of black men in America. This was, this was some years back. And I was like, I'm a gay man who grew up in the eighties and, um, and we talked about AIDS as, as genocide. And she was like, you did? And I was like, yeah. And so by, it, it took us a year of conversation to get to the place where we could kind of find that kind of center of agreement, but, but it was a worthwhile conversation to have. And it was just by me, me, me being like, no, let me give you a little bit of background. Like, it's like, you, you don't remember that. I mean, you were, you, were, you were born after the eighties. Like, it's like, let's just like, kind of like have this conversation. So I, I feel like rather, in fact, what I would, what I'd like us to be teaching our, our kids is authentically showing up as themselves and all of themselves that they are. So that that implies environments uh, of safety and belonging with a level of attachment, right? Where where you can present uh, an authentic self. So that's right. Um, but it does come back to context that we talked about a few minutes ago of. of being context aware uh, uh, enough of a space uh, to understand um, 
if they're ready for all the use that you're bringing to the party. Yeah, no, it, it really does. And, you know, the, the, the high school that I went to had these really interesting kinds of things. So for instance, like we would have an, every, like every three to three days a week, we had a, an all school, what we called a morning exercise. And so the whole school would be together. So it'd be junior kindergarten all the way through senior year. Seniors would always adopt um, classes. So you were actually kind of engaging with those classes in really deep ways understand each other. I had a lot of mentors from a very young age who were, I think, gay men, boys, white, white, white boys who were actually, I think, in, in many ways kind of helping me along as we were going there. It's like, but it's like, I really feel like, like in a good way, that not, not in a, in a, in a weird way. Um, and, and I feel like um, there's, there's a lot of kind of support in, the, in that. And, and that community was really built to model uh, an expansive and embracing construct. Um, despite the fact that a lot of privilege existed in that construct because it was a private school. Um, and, and yet we really, we did everything, they, they did everything they could to kind of expand it as much as possible to, to, to the community around it as well. Fred, what do constraints have to do with conversation? Everything. So, um, so here, here's, here's the thing. It, it, in the design vocabulary, we consider constraints to be fantastic, right? So it's like constraints actually help us expand. They're often I'll tell people, even in career conversations, every time you close a door, 10 of the doors may open. And so it's like, it's better to close the door that you can kind of close. Um, interestingly, Tom, I just stepped off the board of a university recently because I was like, I was like, I don't have time. And also I feel like there's other places I could be spending the time in, 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 in kind of more useful ways. But um, uh, constraints are really another way of saying rules and kind of beginning to establish the rules for a conversation, either collectively or to, to set them in a way that feels good or reset them if they doesn't feel good, right? So that, right. that you can actually think about it. And actually one of my favorite stories um, is around, and I can't remember what it's called, it's the responsive classroom, which I think is actually, it's like it's it's like a K through 12 thing um, where schools or classes or grades will set the rules for, a, they'll set a goal for the year and then collectively they'll decide on the rules that actually will help them get to that goal. And so, and there's rules for rules that they have within there. But one of them, for instance, is, um, is you have to use all positive language. So you can't say um, no running with scissors or no running with an ax or no running with a hatchet. You, uh, you, have, to, you have to say, um, be safe. Be safe, right? right? Which is like, which is like, that's kind of all encompassing. It's like running scissors, all of it. You know, it's like, so it's like, and, um, and I love that. And then one of my favorite ones <laughs> was, I can't remember, it's, it's something like, joy or, 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 or be joyful or something like that was like, was just like was one of the rules. And I was, I was like, this is like, this is like, this is like kind of genius. So, so I, I think I actually borrowed a lot on how to think about rules from classrooms and how classrooms actually do that to kind of make things really responsive. And, and you know, Tom, I, I can tell you one more story. I, I was, I have a lot of friends right now who have 16, 17 year old, 18 year old white boys, sons who are come from privilege who are getting bullied by their teachers in classrooms right now. Um, or getting bullied by their 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 class classmates, and um, I'm not willing for us to lose anyone in this generation. Like it's like it's like I think I think we all all of them deserve a shot, and so I, th I think we need to be really working to establish the yeah. rules that make people safe in those classrooms. Wanted to pop in and share a tool we've been hearing teachers rave about and have used and loved ourselves called Screencastify. This screen recording and video editing tool is designed to be easy to use for educators at any skill level and for students of any age. 
Whether you're brand new or a seasoned video creator, you'll find that Screencastify is the most powerful yet most simple to use screen recording solution available. With over 100 million videos made in 2020, it's likely that some of your district teams are already using Screencastify. Regardless of whether your learning is remote, hybrid, or in-person, asynchronous video is one of the most powerful tools a teacher and learner can have. Learn more about Screencastify and start recording today at screencastify.com slash getting smart, or click the link in the show notes or this episode's blog. I would, I'd love to um, dive into that and, and talk about how education um, can teach conversation, can teach real um, dialogue. And, and you, since you started uh, with 16, 17-year-olds, let's talk about high school. How, both in terms of culture and curriculum, can we do a better job of, of teaching uh, conversation? Um, well, I think we can do it through our classics. So we can do it through history. You know, the, the book is, it's so funny when, when the book came out, everyone was like, Wall Street Journal was like, that's so futuristic. I'm like, no, this is ancient, ancient history. Like we can go way, 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 way back from this one. Um, this is, this is pre-literate cultures. This is pre-verbal cultures. Like they're not, now I think the Neanderthals, I think that they actually could speak in fear, which I think is a really fascinating thing. Um, so and one of my first lectures I gave, my eighth grade history teacher showed up and she was like, what? You know history? It's like, because like, I think I got consistent C's in history. But, but what I think is really lovely about classroom constructs, and I think that actually works all the way up until kind of like the, the, um, the, the tertiary, like, you know, other, other kinds of educational contexts is that we get to have conversations about key societal issues without necessarily always having to have them ride on the news hook. Right. So right. we could be reading the Decameron and be talking about plague and and be talking about, um, you know, it, like uh, aristocracy and, 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 the, and, the, and, and divergence in, in who gets to kind of tell what kinds of stories like you can do that around the Decameron in a way that feels quite quite safe and comfortable and you can make connections to modern life, but you don't have to live in the news hook. And I think one of the things I worry about the most for our generations that are upcoming is riding these news hooks is so painful for them. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like, whereas like, if we can, if we can talk about now, but do it by looking at back, you know, go, go back to the Bible, right? Like, it's like, I, you know, my, my, in my school in sixth grade, we had Bible or seventh grade, I think we had Bible myth and epic um, where we studied myth, the Bible. And it's like, my husband, I'm always like, Really? Do I have to teach you the Bible so you can understand what that just meant? It's like because it's like you, you you miss a lot if you miss the kind of key liturgical texts of the fundamental religions that exist in 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 the world. Um, uh, you miss a lot if you you miss the history of indigenous Americas or indigenous populations in general and the way that indigenous people govern. Um, so I, I would just say that 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 really learning is such just by learning and talking about these things we can we can we, we unpack all the ways we can think about learning about who we are and understand all the ways that we can talk about having conversations i mean it'd be interesting tom to be like okay today to establish a civil conversation we're going to use platonic ideals or today we're going to use um ideals that would be set from uh Christ's teachings, or we're going to use ideals that were set by, you know, we, we, we could actually kind of almost play with the rules for every conversation based on the texts that we're engaging with or, or based on it. We could talk about math in really fascinating ways. So I think there's all kinds of things that we can be doing. I, 
I spent a lot of time thinking about writing and the development of writing. And in, in writing, uh, formative feedback is, is quite important. Is that true for conversation? And if so, where and how should learners be getting formal or informal feedback on, uh, on the way they engage in dialogue? So yeah, what I, what I actually talk about quite a, yes. Um, however, I think that it's like, and by the way, it's, let's, let's be really clear. It's, these are not every conversation. So gossips, whispering, like telling like funny stories, like whatever, like that, just don't right. touch those, let, the, let those happen. Like as long as like those feel safe and, and secure. But th these are the hard ones, the ones that might make us afraid, the ones that have to get somewhere really fast. Um, those are the things we really wanna be looking at. And, um, and, and by the way, and many of those are, in, are happen in classrooms, you know, it's like, cause it's like, what, what happens if you're reading James Baldwin in a classroom and, and what, what, and how do you, and what are the safe ways to have those conversations, right? It's like, what if, what if you're reading a, a text with ancient swear words that actually still have relevance today, which as we know, many of our texts do. So you, you have to be thinking about these things kind of all the way through. Um, my, my perspective is that Yes, you should be giving kind of feedback um, as, as you move along, but doing it in ways that feel constructive and positive and or um, one of the things that I write about in the book um, that, that I use a lot is a, is a construct called peaceful interruption. Mm. So how, how, how can we interrupt something quite peacefully? So we can do it with silence, like just giving 30 seconds of silence, right? We can do it with taking a breath is a peaceful interruption. We can do it by singing. So um, one of the most spectacular moments I've ever seen was a woman who asked if she could say something in a meeting that was going really terribly and she stood up and then she just sang a lullaby. Um, and it kind of made the whole room be like, oh yeah, we could die because lullabies are really about mortality. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and that was a really remarkable moment. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, but I, I think the thing is that, um, what I think, Tom, and I'm really curious to hear your, your thoughts on this. It's like, it's like, they don't have to all be like teacherly moments. Like they don't have to be like, oh, whatever. It, instead, it can be things like acknowledging moments. Like, like, oh, wait, did you notice that something changed in the conversation there? Like suddenly, like you could feel that everybody got a little bit more elevated or everybody got a little bit more like angry or whatever. Like, let's notice that change and let's understand it, you know? Um, so does that yeah, make sense? Does that feel, does that feel? Too, uh, I, I, I do think there's a place for structured feedback in both oral and written communication, uh, particularly in English social studies. Um, but there, maybe the most important place to learn the art of dialogue at the secondary level is probably in the advisory structure where you have a sustained adult relationship, probably a sustained relationship with a dozen, 15, 18 um, young people where you learn to listen, you learn to talk to each other. I think of um, the Valor Academies where they start each day in a circle and they practice speaking with each other. Um, and, and I think it's those teachable moments in a safe, supportive environment in the context of sustained relationships uh, where you can really learn uh, the art of conversation. Well, it's a great example. I, I don't know. I don't know the organization. I'll look it up right after I get off. But I think, um, but you hit, you said a word that I think is really important here, which is practice, right? Which is that it's like, you may not think about it, but we have to practice conversations. Um, we have to, we have to practice. Like I have a friend who wrote a book called Giving Voice to Values, Mary Gentili. And she looked at people who were whistleblowers in their institution. And she found two things. Um, one was 
these were people who learned how to kind of get used to their own voice, going back to that code switching question, like that they could actually kind of say something in a way that they felt comfortable with, because they were like, most people don't identify as courageous. And so she's quite shy. So she was saying that rather than sort of saying, hey, stop telling that racist joke, she would just say, hey, there's work to be done. Can we move on to the the work? And that would be like kind of a way to steer past that. But the second thing that she learned was the people who stood up to um, malfeasance in one way or another in the workplace often had had somebody in their life who made them practice having that conversation. What about little kids? Any any thoughts about um, the primary grades and uh, things that we could do to teach dialogue? Little, little kids are little kids are pretty good at it. Um, and so what's what's funny is that it's like when I would design education spaces, which I did quite a bit, or education, it's like I would often look at kindergarten and and um, and to understand it. So creative tensions, which is one of the um, the structures I built. Um, which is basically about people moving themselves back back and forth across a room based on how they feel about where they stand in terms of ideas that seem like they're in polemic with each other. Like, um, I'm more silk, I'm more corduroy, or when police are around, I feel safe, or I feel more unsafe. Um, um, Kids are really good at that. And that's what I always tell adults when I do that, that when I do that kind of structure is I'm like, hey, listen, if like five-year-olds can do this really well, so you probably got this, um, but it's it's actually harder for like adults to do it than often than than than, than kindergartners. I do think I think a lot. I don't have children, um, and which is a which for me is hard. Like I've always wanted children, but but I I love talking to children, um, and I love talking. And I think it's really important to talk to them about the things that they care about. Like like what do they want to be when they grow up? And and like. And like in my village, I have a house in Maine and it's on an unbridged island. And when I come into town, like the kids just like swarm around us, like to, to, to talk to us. And um, I'm always like, I'm like, you want to be a private detective? I've got a mystery. Can you, can you solve this? Here's, here's a nickel. Like, it's like, it's like, oh, it's like, you, you know, you want to be a, um, you know, it's like whatever. So it's just like, it's kind of like encouraging that imagination, life of imagination and the fact that they're in conversation. I mean, what's interesting, Tom, is that the kids, the kids that are emerging today, if we let them be who they're going to be, they're going to be spectacular, mythical things that we would never have seen before. I, I do. Um, I, I guess I'm circumspect about the strange year that we just went through and the generation of young people that haven't had in-person conversations. Um, for some, the safety of Zoom and the space for them to interact has actually been a benefit, but I think for most young people, the absence of conversation, both formal and informal, in person, uh, has been a real detriment. Um, so, I, I, I hope hope uh, starting this summer, this fall, we can reconnect with kids and create safe places for them to have a dialogue. Yeah, I mean, and it's it is really funny. I will say that there are places. I mean, by the way, the the swarms of kids are saying that that was that was our island in the fall because we had had no cases and so it was like and 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 and, and really haven't had any cases there yet um of any in any kind of like significant context or construct but um it's one of the reasons why i'm liking I don't, one of the things i'm seeing tom is a is kind of like this new rural urban blur so the small town that we live in upstate um they were about to close the high school because they only had like I think eight graduates, um, and now there's about like 50 students um, in in the in the graduating class, and that's because 
people have come from Brooklyn and this is three and a half hours northwest of New York um, into the small town. So not only are they saving the school, but we're blurring these people who had never gotten blurred, blurred before. And like they're understanding. Like, so I, and what I'm hoping is that that's going to break down this notion of, a, of the, what's, what's rural, what's urban or what's flyover and what's not. Um, I think that'll be good, not, not just for us, but for the, the globe. And I will say one other thing, I did do an interview for um, Child Art Magazine really early on. And they were like, what's one conversation every kid should be having right now? And I was like, you should be talking to your dog, your cat, your fish, the, your tree, your plant, because talking with the earth is one of the most important things that we do right now. So um, I don't know. Fred, earlier I mentioned Valor Collegiate Academies. Uh, the name of their program is called Compass. And oh, there are now, um, there's now... Uh, hundreds of schools around the country using the Compass program. Beautiful, beautiful example of culture plus skills um, that lead to, to thoughtful dialogue. Yeah, no, I, I know. Actually, I do know Compass. And it's interesting because the next place I'm going is Nashville. So thanks for the tip. Yeah, check it out. Um, uh, tough, tough conversations. Um, how do you, if, if you're thinking about a tough conversation with your partner, um, or, or maybe a work partner. Um, any tips for how to enter into that conversation? Yeah. So um, first of all, there's, there's a couple of different ways. Like, so one of the toughest conversations that I always had to get into was the idea of critique because I, my job was to critique um, teams, clients, all kinds of things all the time. And in that situation where I'm giving critique, I, I have the power. And so one of the things that I often do when I'm critiquing my teams to this day or anyone to this day um, is say, I got the power. I'm going to pass it to you. What are some, some things you don't want me to touch? I won't touch them. What are things you really need help on? And we'll work on those things together. And then you're going to pass the power back to me. And then we'll have that conversation. Wow. And um, yeah, and it's, it's a very simple mechanism. It works really well um, in, it almost always works. It's like, and you also, you don't do, don't have tough conversations when you haven't eaten, like, you know, don't, don't have tough conversations when you're really, really tired. Don't have conversations. That's you know. another, that's a great tip. It's like, it's like basic my, physiology. No, my team knows that I get hangry. It's like, no, we, we shouldn't have that conversation right now. That, that's exactly right. And another mechanism I use that I use both with my teams, but I also use with my husband is I, in the, in the book, I, I write about a thing called hunch hour where you, um, you throw out a hunch, like, so Tom, you would throw out a hunch, like, um, I, I might even ask you if you have a hunch. And then I would either complicate or confirm that hunch, but I can't mm. do that. Which, by the way, is not saying I disagree or I agree. I'm, and, and, and by the way, you're not throwing out a thesis, you're throwing out a hunch. Um, right. and, and, and I would basically say I could only complicate or confirm if, for instance, um, I had a piece of evidence around it. So for instance, my husband and I will have this conversation where I'm like, hey, it seems like it's a really good year for us to adopt a child. And he's like, I'm gonna complicate that by saying, I don't wanna raise a child as a single as a single father. And I'll be like, I'll complicate that by saying- Fred, I, I, <laughs> So I have to ask you this, is, has this book made your life more complicated? Like <laughs> everyone you interact with now thinks, oh, Fred, he's that expert on, on conversation. Oh. I, ne I never say expert, right? Because the moment you say expert, you're gonna you're gonna go down. I just happen to to be well practiced um, in 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 the art of it, and and you know my husband will say it's like I I, I don't I trust everybody. So it's like, no, it's made my life more fun. I mean, it's, I, just, it's I'm sure it's been fun, but I'm sure there's uh, people that have sort of beat you over the head with your own book uh, 
on occasion. <laughs> it's, it's all kinds. I've had that. I've had like, it's like, I've had corrections. I have like every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I like to turn people on Twitter. So the vegans were really mad at me a while back ago. And I was like, Hey vegans, I love you. Like you'll probably convince me that I should be a vegan. And they were like, we love you too. And it's like, it's, like, so it's just like, yeah. So Fred, um, it's a complicated world. Um, you, you, your, your resume is evidence that you uh, are a voracious learner. What, what's the Fred Dust uh, learning function? How do you keep developing as a human? Give us a couple tips. Uh, um, well, I, if you haven't, if you can, can't tell, um, I have, I have an abundance mindset, um, which people are always like, like literally, like people come over and they're like what's up like it's like, it's like, like like i will always one of my 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 sayings which is an angelinoism it's from los angeles is like it's like it isn't home but it's much um which is like kind of let's say which is that you know my my perspective there's two things that i well i'll tell you what my mission is and, and it's like but my perspective is my my mother had a stroke when she was 24 i recognized then that i had a time limit on my life um and so i would took it upon myself to say i'm gonna make conversation with everyone i can ever meet because I want to know everyone. I want to. I want to know as much as I possibly can. That's a, the mission I have right now: is to be out there, consistently telling stories of people who've gotten through the hardest conversations of their lives creatively, mm-hmm. um, through making and through thinking carefully about the conversations. Yeah. That is not the story that politicians want to tell. That is not the story that the newspapers want to tell. But it's our job to make sure that people tell that story. That's beautiful, uh, beautiful mission, an unusual one, but uh, I love it. That's uh, that's part of what we try to do with this podcast uh, as well. Fred Dust, uh, it's a great book. Um, we think it's a great book, particularly for teachers, for educators. It's a book parents ought to read. I think uh, high school kids would get a, a tremendous amount. Um, this ought to be uh, required reading in junior English. What do you think of that, Fred? I, I, I think it's I think it's PG thirteen. So I think I think we although right now I don't even know what that is anymore because it's like <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah I, I I think that's right. Um, it's a and a, and I, I will tell you I, one thing that we haven't had is like you know I was the son of a headmaster um, and uh, and and. Boy, the stories I could tell. So someday we'll have to come back and I can, I can tell you just about the, what it's like to be a son of a headmaster. So, Fred, thanks for your book and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much to Fred for joining us on this week's episode. We are inspired by his continued leadership in making processes, products, and minds better. For more on design thinking, be sure to check out episode 301 with Joe Erpelding on Magical Schools and Thrively. We'll be sure to put the link in the show notes and on the blog. All right, that's it for today, listeners. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. Mm -hmm.